We've been looking through uh, the book of Colossians over the last uh, few weeks, and has anyone found it helpful so far, looking at um, being clothed in the certain aspects of the Christian faith? And um, it's been really good and helpful for me personally, uh, just exploring what we should be clothed in as followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm really excited today to uh, talk on something that I'm sure you've heard hundreds of sermons on, and that is this word, love, love. Who knows that love is powerful? Who knows that love is transformative, life-changing? Is there anyone in here that's encountered God's love before? His love is powerful. And today we get to explore it, but we've already had a taste of it. And how good has it been just to worship him and glorify him for his love? You know, God's love doesn't just save us from something, it saves us for something. God's love doesn't just rewrite our history, and it does do that, but it radically transforms our present, and it propels us into his glorious future. God's love is powerful. And I'm praying this morning, and I've been praying this week, that as we look at this topic of being clothed in love, that this just wouldn't be another moment for us to... um, kind of come around a topic that maybe we've got used to or we kind of think we know most things about, but I'm praying this morning that God's love would not just be spoke about, but it would be felt. I'm praying this morning that all of us in here would leave this room going, today I encountered the love of God and I can't wait to tell the world about it. God's love is so powerful. Words can only do so much, but an experience of the nature of God changes everything. Can I tell you a story really quickly? It's a story of something that took place a few years ago whilst I was here as the youth pastor, and I took our young people away to a a summer camp in August. And uh, whilst we was away at this summer camp, we um, took quite a few non-Christians with us to this camp, which is always one of my favorite things to do, to see non-Christians come into an environment where they are just kind of like, I had no idea that God was like this. We took them to this five-day camp, and There was two boys who, um, one was a non-Christian, the other one was kind of um, struggling a little bit with his faith, and um, I noticed very early on as we were getting on the couch that these two boys were kind of going for that alpha male role, and they were starting to butt heads a little bit, and I thought, well, this could be interesting this week. Anyway, two days into this camp, I was in a meeting with some of the youth leaders, and I got a phone call from one of my team who was looking after the young people, and he said, you need to come back immediately. These two boys are about to have a scrap. They're about to fight. Oh, everything inside me at this point thought, well, this is not the reason why I brought you to this summer camp, I can guarantee you that. So I left this meeting, I got back to where our young people were in the middle of this field, and I approached it, and lo and behold, I was too late. Unfortunately, um, these two boys had started punching each other, and they'd got into a proper fight. I came back, and dad mode came on to me, and I kind of grabbed these two lads by the collar, I took them to the side, I sat them down, and I started speaking to them about how we are a family. We're the family of God, and we are going to get frustrated at one another at times. We're going to get angry at one another at times, but we deal with things differently to the way the world deals with things. When the world turns to violence, we turn to love. When the world turns to frustration and anger, we turn to peace. And I started speaking to these two lads, and I said, look, for the rest of this camp, you guys have got to deal with this. You've got to say sorry to each other, and we've got to experience what God's got for us. So these two young people, I could tell immediately, were listening to nothing that I just said for the last five minutes, and they were just staring at each other with these gritted teeth. And I went, say sorry to each other. So they looked at each other, and he went, I'm sorry. And the other one looked back, and he went, well, I'm sorry too. Knowing that nothing had gone on in the heart, I recognized something very quick, that everything that was coming out of their mouths did not match what was going on on the inside. 
I thought, God, it's over to you now. I've got to go prepare. And I went to our main evening session, which I was hosting uh, the main session. And we went into this session, 1,000 young people in this big auditorium, and our young people came through, and I can remember being on stage looking over, and our young people during worship, they were worshiping, they were lifting their hands just like we've experienced now, and lo and behold, at one end of the group was this one of the lads, and on the other end of the group was this other lad. In the middle was this holy scrum of worship, and then at the side were these two lads just looking at each other across the room. There was a sermon, a preacher, and he preached a really good message, and then there was some ministry time, and I got lost in some of the responsibilities I was doing in handling some of the prayer ministry that was taking place, and then uh, about an hour into this session, my mind snapped, and I thought, oh my goodness, what's happening to our own young people? What's happening to these two boys? So I got up on the stage, and I started to look out for our youth group, and I found our youth group, and it was an amazing picture of young people just praying for each other, encouraging one another, and celebrating one another, and lo and behold, in the whole group, the two guys went there, and everything in my heart stopped. I thought, are they outside fighting? Where on earth are these two boys? And I locked eyes with one of my youth leaders, and he looked at me, and I gave him the look as if to say, where on earth are these two lads? And with a smile on his face, he looked back, and he just pointed right into the middle of the room. So my eyes started to map out, thinking I'm about to jump into the middle of this group and stop a fight. And there, right in the middle of this group, were these same two young people, with both hands on each other's chests, with tears coming down their mind and their eyes and their cheeks, praying for one another, forgiving one another, and blessing one another. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because when we encounter the love of God, lives are transformed. And it is only in the church, in the kingdom of God, can two young people go from punching each other in the face to a couple of hours later, praying and loving one another. God's love is powerful. It shifts and transforms even the biggest circumstances. It moves and, sh- and shifts our lives. Love is the totality of who God is. In Colossians 3.14, which is what we're looking at today, it said, over all these virtues, and that's the weeks we've been looking at prior, the words we've been looking at and what we're clothed in, it says, of, of all these virtues, put on love because love binds them all together in perfect unity. I want to say that love is the total expression of all the other sermons we have looked at so far. In fact, I would argue that when we put on some of the other things that we have looked at, gentleness, meekness, humility, forgiveness, patience, peace, all these different things, when we start to clothe ourselves in them as Christians, we actually start to operate in the clothing of love. The reason why we are compassionate, kind, gentle, humble, patient, and forgiven, the reason why we take them clothes on for us is because when we live in those things, we start to walk in love. And how many people know that we are called to walk in love? There is an angry world right now, and we need to be the people of love, right? In a hurting world, in a dying world, in a dark world, in a world that has so many grudges and frustrations with so much calamity that's taken place, there is an invitation for the church right now to be the church of love that moves into the darkness with compassion in their hands to see light transforming the darkness. We are called to be a people of love. Would you forgive me for a moment just by this morning letting me share and speak and get a little bit passionate about God's love? Is that okay this morning, church? Come on. God's love for your life this morning is unmatched. 
I don't know where you've been or what you've gone through. I don't know what your faith life is like right now, but I want to declare to you from the offset, God's love for your life is unmatched. There is nothing that will compete with it, nothing that will compare with it, nothing that can come close to it. It pursues you, it chases you, it desires you, and it longs to be close to you. God's love is greater than any romance, relationship, friendship, and marriage. His love never ends, never fails, and it never gives up. God's love is powerful. God's love is releasing people into destiny. God's love is healing people from captivity. It's restoring people to wholeness. It's anointing people to mission. It's making ordinary people do extraordinary things. The sidewalks, towns, cities, villages, pubs, clubs, schools, colleges, universities, and homes are all waiting to be immersed in the love of God. There is no brokenness too much, no person too far, and no darkness too strong for the powerful nature of God's love. I want you to see this morning that God's love is precise and distinctive in its purpose, that it breaks down walls of hostility and it barges down barriers of exclusion. It ravages the bondages of darkness. We've already seen it do that this morning and it illuminates the works of our King that is King Jesus. And the greatest news of all that I've got for you this morning is that God's love is not dependent on what you or I do. God's love is dependent on who he is. He's a loving God. His nature is love. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. We don't look at love and then try and make a God out of it. We look at God and we find love. We don't just look at God and start finding love, but God is the very nature of love. As God's love is powerful, often in my own life, I found that um, my understanding of love has sometimes been distorted. And I know that's the same with many young people that I work with in the youth ministry, and perhaps it's the same with some of us in the room today. But often my love and my understanding of love has been shaped by the experiences of my life and the experience of this world. You know, I found that people can be hurtful at times, right? In fact, I found in my own life that I have hurt people and people have hurt me. And in that process, in that journey of life, I have understood and realized that my understanding of love has been shaped and discipled by my own experiences. Perhaps in your life, love has caused you pain. Perhaps in your life, love has been something that's difficult to navigate because you have felt like love has let you down. Perhaps love has been the source of disruption and at times frustration. Well, if that is you this morning, I want you to know that God's love is unmatched And he's longing to show you a love that will never fail and never falter. In the Bible, there's this beautiful portrayal of what love is. And we see it in the life of Jesus and we see it in the New Testament. But in our modern day understanding, when we listen to our music and we watch our films, our understanding of love can be shaped by so many different things. For so long in my life, love was just something that was an emotive response. Love was something that often I got from it and I responded to something. If I felt good by someone's actions, I would choose love in response. If I loved someone and I didn't get anything back, something inside of me would feel a little bit lost and a little bit hurt. And the problem with that is that love in that understanding is defined by an emotional capacity. But the love in the Bible is actually portrayed to be something a little bit different. In the New Testament, when Paul teaches on love, he portrays a love that's different to an emotional response. In Jesus' life, as he walked and as he lived, he showed that love is different to an emotional response. In fact, in the Bible, love, in its best context, in its best definition, is less about emotions and more about commitment. 
Love is actually less about feelings and more about dedication. Sometimes that's hard for us to hear because we are emotive beings. But love in the Bible operates differently to the way this world celebrates it. Biblical love isn't dependent on feelings. Biblical love is dependent on commitment. And that is good news for followers of Jesus this morning because it simply means this. No matter how God is feeling about us, he is committed to us. There is no failure or success, too high or too low, that will falter or disrupt the pursuit of God's love for his church and for his people. If there is shame on your life this morning, God wants to remove it. And he wants to lift it, and he wants to replace it with an eternal love. God's love is powerful. When God's love is present, life starts to be birthed. But when God's love isn't present, we actually, as the church, lose what I would say is our heartbeat, our centrality, who we were born and purposed for. It starts to fade away when we don't operate in being clothed in love. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at something together really quickly. And this is something that um, many of you will know. Who has heard um, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love before? Has anyone Yeah, majority of you know that. If you don't, then Paul's right into a church, and there's just this beautiful, poetic language about love. If you've been to a wedding before, you've probably heard it in a wedding. It is the most famous wedding verse that you can possibly ever imagine, and it speaks about the nature and the doings of love. Love is kind. Love is patient. All these kind of different things, and it lists them all off, and it's a beautiful chapter encouraging us um, about what love is and how love operates, and the weddings, the love, and the romance is often um, pictured towards this chapter, but what I found interesting in studying this is this chapter actually was never intended to be anything to do with romance. Can you believe it? That's not going to go down well at a wedding if I got up and said that, would it? The chapter of love was actually not intended to be anything to do with romance, weddings, relationships, or the way we perhaps see love. In fact, Paul was writing to a specific church, a church of Corinth, and as he was writing to this church, he recognized something about their behavior, and here's what he recognized. The church was powerful. Like the church was doing some incredible things in the city. It was growing. It had lots of people. They had prophets. They had preachers. They had teachers. They had the best worship leaders. They were a mega church in the eyes of the world. Yet Paul, as he's writing to them, and as he's speaking to them, as he's having relationship with them, he, he realizes and recognizes one thing. He realizes that no matter how much power they may seem to have, they are lacking something that is more important, and that is love. You see, a church can look great on the outside, but if it doesn't have love on the inside, something is majorly off. Because love is the centrality of who God is. And Paul, as he's writing this chapter and he starts to define what love is, so the church starts to realize this is who you should be as a church. Before he gets there, he speaks about something else in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 2. And in this passage of scripture, Paul is writing to them and he's saying, look, it may look like to the world you have everything, but in actual fact, you have nothing. Even if we are known all around the world, even if we have the biggest and most beautiful building, even if we do all the right things to help this nation, even if we prophesy, preach, teach, and proclaim Jesus, yet we do not have love, none of it matters. Now that is sometimes hard to take, isn't it? But that's what Paul was addressing here to this church. You see, when love isn't present, we lose our influence to transform 
When love isn't present, we actually silence ourselves. We lose our voice. The world doesn't hear. Our neighbors don't hear. Our colleagues don't hear. The people we are longing to see Jesus, they won't hear if it doesn't start in love. Listen to these words that Paul writes. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and in the tongues of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith so strong to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. It's a fairly harsh rebuke, isn't it? Paul's going straight for it. And here's what Paul is saying. You can have all the giftings of the Holy Spirit and all the talent and all the popularity, but if you don't have love, you're not going to make a lasting impact. The impact of the ways of Jesus are intrinsically linked to the depths of our love. If you want to make a difference while you're here on this earth, then my call to you this morning will be to pursue love with everything you have. Because when you pursue love, you find Jesus. That's who you find. Being clothed in love is crucially important to the mission of Jesus, to a broken and hurting world. And I love that when we read the scriptures, we see that Jesus didn't use force. He didn't use popularity. He didn't use the latest trends. Jesus used love to change the world. And I believe this morning he is continuing to call his church towards the way of love. I believe this morning that you and I, as much as we know about love, as much as we have heard sermons about love, there is a fresh and new calling to lift the levels of, up, uh, of love up as high as we can go. Love to the world, love to our neighbor, and love to people in this church. How many people know that love for one another in here is powerful? John 17, Jesus prays a prayer and he gets, gathers his disciples and around. He says, if you want the world to know my love, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And he gathers his disciples. This is one of his final prayers before he ascends to heaven. And he prays this prayer for them four times in the scriptures. Four times he prays it in one prayer. Love one another like me and the Father love ourselves. Because when you do that, the world will know that my love is true and it is real. Here's what Jesus is saying. When we learn to love one another well, it is the greatest evangelistic and missional tool to a dying world. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? That when we come here on a Sunday morning and we choose love over hate and love over fear and love over shame, and we choose to spend our love into other people's lives, to invest it into the broken, to invest it into the hurting, to invest it into pastoring and discipling people, when we choose to do that, the world sees and the world notices and the world has a picture of God's love. Paul uses this uh, little phrase here. He says that when you don't choose love, you will be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You will not be able to hurt. And the Bible it is simply saying this, that when you don't have love, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you may want to look, you are only going to be heard through a certain avenue. I could have all the best sermons in the world. We could have the best worship leaders in the world. We could look good and we can filter our Instagrams and our social medias with Jesus everywhere. But if we don't start with love, the world only hears one thing. And it's not the message of Jesus. Paul literally says that here is what the world hears. All the giftings in the world. And this is what the world hears. 
all the talent and all the passion in the world. We can keep trying, keep going, and keep talking. Well, that's all the world hears. But friends, let me tell you, when the love of God encaptures our hearts, when we start to move in the purposes and the nature of who God is, the world doesn't just hear our voice. The world hears the voice of Jesus crying to a broken world, come home, come home, come home. We have more to give when we root ourselves in love and we start to proclaim that this isn't about what we look like. This is about what Jesus looks like. I'm a broken person. We are a broken person. But together, when we choose love over anything else the world can offer, the world sees Jesus. We rid away with the noisy symbols and the gongs, and we start to speak clearly and authentically into societal matters. In order to change this world, we don't need the strategies of men or the hype of noise. We need the love of God. It is the love of God that transforms this world. It is the love of God that transforms our hearts. And if our theology does not make us love more, our theology is wrong. Because theology and study and discipleship and coming to church should slowly but surely make us into more loving people. That's the whole point of this book. Because when love isn't present, we stop being who we are meant to be. But when love is present, the church starts to advance in the ways of Jesus like never before. And as the world gets angrier and darker... There is an invitation to the church to become more loving and bold than ever before. And that is our call this morning. Clothe ourselves in love and let the message of Jesus be heard loudly. How about an upgrade in boldness with our love? How about an upgrade in extravagance with our love? How about that when we walk out this building, we don't just hear a sermon and let it encourage our emotions, but we choose love is not feelings. Love is dedication and love is commitment. So today, I choose above my feelings, above my context, to be committed and dedicated to the ways of love. To choose love over anything else that can be put your way. 1 Corinthians 13 starts off by showing us what happens when love isn't present, but it goes on to show us what happens when love is present. Band, if you could join me, that would be wonderful. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 8, goes on to speak about the nature and the doings of love. It goes on to speak about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Who's thankful that God keeps no records of our wrongs in our lives? That's the cross of Christ right there. No records, canceled, gone, past, present, and even our future sins. No record of them in God's mind. When God sees his church, he doesn't see our imperfections. He sees the person of Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his power, in all of his magnitude. That's the power of the cross. No records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. People may have failed you. Love doesn't. People may have left you. Love doesn't. People may have lied to you. Love doesn't. People may have hurt you. Love doesn't. And the reason why love doesn't is because love isn't emotion. Love is who God is. 
And he's with you in every single situation, every single circumstance, wanting to support you, wanting to empower you. That's the nature of who God is. In 1 John chapter 4, an amazing passage of scripture. Read it tonight when you get home. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. That's who he is. But it goes on in a few verses later to say, the reason why you and I know love is because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Church, in order for us to clothe ourselves in love, we must first recognize that love is exactly who God is. Jesus is love personified. And wherever Jesus is, love abounds. Here's what it means. Jesus was patient. Jesus was kind. Jesus did not envy. Jesus was not proud. Jesus did not dishonor. Jesus was not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no records of wrongs. Jesus did not delight in evil, but he does rejoice with truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And here's the kicker. Jesus does not fail. It's not in his nature. He's never going to fail. Hear that truth. Jesus is never going to fail. In your life, in my life, in our life, in this world, against any armies, in any people, and any evil force, Jesus will not fail. Never. It's not going to happen. He does not fail. <laughs> even when the music is boring, and even when the sermons don't inspire, and even when the seats and the pews are empty in the church, death is still conquered. Jesus is still on the throne, and he will never fail. Jesus is love. And the beauty of our faith is that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit, only by that, not by power, not by might, not by strength, not by memorizing all the verses of Scripture, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, our commission, co-mission with Jesus is to carry the love of Jesus wherever we go. That means you today, you tomorrow, you the next day, in every sphere that you find yourself in, in every office, in every workplace, wherever you are, your family, your friends, whoever you meet in the future, there is a commissioning and an anointing and an ordination that is set for your life to be a carrier of love wherever you go.